I don't think we've ever forgotten that the creation of a book is a fundamentally collaborative process. Let's just look at one, one book from Siren Sister Abbey, which, by the way, will be celebrating the 900th anniversary of its founding next year, and the town of Siren Sister will be organizing a year-long festival for this. This is Siren Sister Abbey's copy of Josephus, now in Jesus College manuscript number 63. Just look at this book. This is, just on a simple level, obviously somebody had to put together the binding of this book. So you see the, you see the sewing of the book that's um, on the conveniently slightly frayed spine. You see um, somebody, had to, um, put, so somebody had to sew that whole thing together. Somebody had to cover it in leather. Somebody had to cut the oak boards that keep the book together. Somebody had to, of course, put together, prepare the parchment design the page layout, rule the page. And then at some point, you had one or more scribes copy the whole book. Of course, somebody had to compose that text as well. In most medieval books, some, there's also a rubricator involved at a separate stage. So here you see at, at the left-hand side, you see that somebody's actually left a guideline for the rubricator who has then copied this out. And then further up the page, we have one of, those, one of these absolutely fantastic initials that um, Siren Sister did such a good job of in the 12th century. And once again, off to the left-hand side, you see a guide for whoever did that. In many manuscripts, you would also have more advanced artists. This is, uh, this is the initial in that book that opens the first book of the manuscript. And so these are all, you know, it's fairly in many ways, not that difficult to identify all of these stages. These are all basic things that book historians do every day. But the problem is that we don't know, we often can't identify the actual people who are doing this. We can't name them. In many cases, we can't even determine the extent to which their activities overlapped. One of the wonderful things about the Siren Sister book, books is that many of them have inscriptions like this one. And so you see on, on this page, which you might notice if you're paying attention, that this inscription was, this is not in fact written by the same hand as the rest of the book. But in any case, um, this, this inscription actually tells us that it was written in the time of Abbot Andrew, and it was written by a fellow named Ralph. And so this allows us to date the manuscript with relative precision, and it confirms um, or suspicion when you thumb through the manuscript that in fact it's actually written by one person. So now you can go even further with the Siren Sister manuscripts by paying attention to the way in which the manuscripts have been changed over time, in particular the way in which they've been corrected. And that's what I've been paying attention to for the last couple of months at the Bodleian, the way in which um, looking at the, the way in which we can we can look at um, the way in which books have been changed, and then trying to connect that to the people who we know existed at Sirencester. And by doing that, I think that we can start to, we can get some sense of the priorities of these people and what, and what they were willing to put additional work into. 
Now you might have noticed on your way in today, on your right-hand side, this gateway from Ascot Park in Oxfordshire. It's from the 15th century. It used to be in the Victorian Albert Museum for most of the 20th century, and when the Western Lib Library was refurbished, um, it was in installed right here. Now its placement here is even more, more appropriate than the explanatory placard lets on. It actually commemorates one of Oxford's first, one of Oxford's earliest known uh, writers and lecturers in, in the town before there was actually a university here. This is Alexander Neckham. Alexander was born in 1157, apparently on the same night as Richard I. And his mother, Hodierna, was actually served as Richard's wet nurse. Alexander, later on, as if one wanted to get a good theological education in this day, one went to Paris. So he, he went there, and then he became the master of the school at Dunstable. Later on, as Matthew Paris, the Benedictine historian, tells us, a couple of years after he started at Dunstable, he applied to the school in his native St. Albans. The inscription on our arch is the abbot's response to his job application. If you are good, then, then come. If you're bad or neckem, don't bother. Alexander responded in kind, if you want me to come, then I will. But if not, then let that be the end of it. He got the job. Now at St. Albans, he, he created books like this one. This is, um, this, is a, this is a copy of his work on useful things. So he, he wrote a number of, of books that are designed to help students learn Latin. And so this book, um, this is the Baldwin Library's manuscript, Digby 37. This book um, is called On Useful Things because it literally starts off with, it's, it's, it's literally descriptions of typical scenes in sort of uh, um, in medieval life in, in the 12th century. So we start off here with the, a description of a kitchen. And, and so the big text that you see here um, is his actual, is, is the main text that describes everything. And then off to the right-hand side, you see various marginal glosses, which explain the grammar of the text. And then you can see that the text is widely spaced out in order to allow the manuscript to, uh, to be glossed, to add, to add cribs for learning the Latin. And so here we see, for example, uh, we see coquina, um, and above that in Anglo-Norman French is written la cuisine, or cooking. Uh, we have mensula for and table, or table. Um, lenticula, lentil, or lentil. This is, uh, and this is, this is an extremely convenient, uh, not, less, not least because, of course, as a Canadian, I must work in French to every presentation I do. So this book, this is one of Alexander's most popular works. There were at least 53 known copies of this thing. Uh, we can tell that both from surviving manuscripts and from, from library catalogues. And so, so he wrote books like this one. Um, and his next stop after St. Albans was right here in Oxford. Now, it's usually been assumed that, okay, this is, here's, a, here's a smart person, here's um, somebody who's you know, intellectually interested. You can tell from, these, from his works that he's somebody who's also highly practical, likes to sometimes, he's not afraid to poke fun at himself a bit to, in order to generate some humor. 
Um, and so it's just been thought, well, he's an academic here. Well, the thing is that in Oxford of the 12th century, you wouldn't necessarily come here to work in the schools. This is, of course, this is again before the creation of the university. Um, and it's the, currently the main argument that still probably still holds most water is one saying that, well, if you came to Oxford, it was most known in the late 12th century as a, as a legal center. This is the argument of Richard Southern. There's been, of course, some debate over this, but the thing is that in Alexander's case, yes, he was, he actually did know some law, but um, he was actually, St. Albans was his native place. He could already teach there. He could already write there. So that's probably not enough reason for him to make the move from St. Albans to Oxford. So there must be something more to it. He tells us in his commentary on the Song of Songs that when he was still in school in Paris, he entered, he entered a pact with a fellow student to, to, to enter religious orders. His, student, he said, his fellow student um, went, went his own ways and was distracted by the cares of the world and didn't follow up, but he did. Later on in Siren's history, he joined the Augustinian canons. We know that for a fact. Um, but his, what he exactly was doing in Oxford is a, bit more, is a bit more ambiguous. And I think we can make the argument that in fact, he was, that probably what drew him to Oxford was the Augustinian canons. Um, in the, the 12th century in Oxford was um, an incredibly exciting place to be for the Augustinian canons. Uh, you can see here that um, not only in the 12th century, there, there's a large number of newly founded houses of Augustinians at this time. And most particularly, I think he probably went to St. Frideswides, which is now Christchurch. He writes a sermon um, in, there was a fire, a large fire, according to the Osney Abbey Chronicles um, in Oxford in 1190. Alexander writes a sermon in response to this, saying, uh, he's, he's exhorting the people of Oxford, saying, um, why, why are you leaving this, you know, the house of St. Frideswide desolate? Why are you leaving her bones open to the air? Um, this might be a bit of an exaggeration, but we can, in fact, still see the effects of the fire. This is the door of the chapter house. And you can actually, um, it's thought by archaeologists that right here you can see the um, the base of the door has actually been extended probably after the fire. It's actually thought that, um, so you can see right here that the, the upper part of the door is, very, is a sort of a very typical Norman style. Um, it's actually thought that it's been probably blackened by the fire. Not quite sure about, about that, but, but you can see that the door is actually is somewhat um, artificially extended. And, and then there's also another sermon he gives in which this is a sermon for the Tenth Sunday after Trinity, and he and he here he he harangues the people of Oxford, saying that the, the text of the sermon that you see here is when Jesus came to to Jerusalem, he looked over the city and he wept. Alexander says, "You people of Oxford, you think you're so smart, but why do you ignore your poor? Why do you, why do you not give alms? We, my my brothers, we are the people that Christ wept over, and." So, you know, it, it, so this is something of a theme for Alexander. And the interesting thing about these sermons is that he seems to be, he uses the term, um, the Latin term is you know, viri fratres, or brothers, to refer to the Augustinian canons. And his, and his other sermons, this seems to be a, a term he uses to refer to them as equals. So the most, 
And the most logical assumption seems to be that, in fact, he was an Augustinian canon at Oxford. And if this is so, it's quite plausible to think that the culture of St. Bride's Wides influences thinking. This is the seal of St. Bride's Wides Priory, in the, created in the late 12th century under the prior Philip, who was um, the prior in Alexander's time. What you see here is that St. Bride's Wide is, is seated holdi holding a lily in her right hand and, and what appears to be a set of open wax tablets in her left hand. And she's consistently, she's consistently portrayed as this learned figure in, um, in the literature created by the Augustinian canons. The, uh, Robert of Cricklade, who is the abbot just before, the prior just before uh, um, Alexander's time, wrote, uh, he revised the life of St. Fraudswide, in which he, he, he says that she memorized the Psalter far quicker than any boy could. Um, and you'll also, and then this, this little manuscript that you see right here on your right, this is Philip's uh, Miracles of St. Fraudswide. And I think we can argue that, that the problem with the Priory of St. Fraudswide is that we don't have any manuscripts from the 12th century that we know for, that are actually documented as being from the Priory. There's one 13th century manuscript written in French that, that is, but that's written after Alexander's life. Um, but I think we can probably argue that this manuscript is actually, is in fact from Oxford. Now, medieval scribes, um, if you don't know paleography, um, medieval scribes wrote so consistently that we can actually date manuscripts based off of, based off of the style of their writing. It's just, you know, it's, it's just absolutely phenomenal the way they were able to maintain consistency, consistency through their work. And so we can tell that this is a manuscript from probably the late 12th century. Furthermore, we can see that it was, used pro it was used by a community that wanted to use it in order to, um, in order to memorialize the saint. So right here, um, this is the, you might have noticed this on the page that's open there. Right here you see, this is a marking in, in the margin saying, uh, this is the beginning of the first reading. So this manuscript is actually broken down into a series of nine readings. And you'll notice further down as well that um, somebody has written beside the Roman numeral, uh, somebody has actually written out the words for this in order to make sure that they don't mess this up when they're reading this passage out loud. So this is not just a problem for undergraduate Latin students. So this is obviously being used on a regular basis to, um, in a public way, this manuscript. Um, and the corrections of, the, of this manuscript are also extremely interesting. I think that we can use them to argue that this is in fact not just some copy of a book, but in fact, probably the, Philip's original fair copy of his text. Now, of course, every manuscript has corrections of some kind. Um, I dare you to try to copy out an entire text by hand without making a mistake for 300 pages long. But the man, so every, every manuscript, you can't just assume that a manuscript is original just because it has corrections. But the, manuscript, the, the corrections that you see here aren't actually necessary. This is actually, this, this passage here is Philip's own account of the translation of St. Fraudswide in 1180. And, and so here he's slightly changed the names of the people who, who were involved. And um, they're, not, they're not really necessary corrections. Furthermore, at the end of the manuscript, 
you see here that it's very obvious that the manuscript changes color. And as well, the, the bit in slightly later brown, that's, that seems to have been the original conclusion of the book. And then the following paragraph, starting at the big H there, he says, well, actually, there's something else I should have said. And, and then he continues, in it, and this is in a different hand. And whoever owned this manuscript certainly really liked Frideswide. At the on the very last leaf in the, of the manuscript was later added this acrostic on Frideswide. And so we have, we have one line of verse for each letter of, of her name commemorating her acts. Um, and then there's also this really interesting series of verses showing how the, the various attributes, attributes of, of Frideswide work against the seven vices. And so this book is, we can probably assume that this is in fact a book from um, from Oxford at least, and that was owned by St. Fridesweid's Priory. Now the next book that I'd like to talk about is Jesus College 94. This is a, this is a fairly large book that's a, a collection of works by Alexander Neckham. And in many ways I think this is the key to understanding the, his, the progression of his career. Now, the first item in this book is Alexander's Glosses on the Psalms. And you'll notice that it's, it's a fairly it's sort of a, a workaday a manuscript. This seems to record his, his, the lectures they gave on the Psalms in Oxford. The question is whether, whether he wrote them in Oxford or in Cirencester, because he says in them that he, he calls himself cloistered in the text. And you'll also notice that at the bottom of the page that the, this, this book is, is this first section of the book, the first part or what people often call a booklet, is, um, it was probably a separate manuscript originally. It's much smaller, it's much shorter than the rest of the manuscript. It's just been sort of stuck in here. This diagram is what bibliographers like to, this shows what bibliographers like to call the collation of the manuscript. So every, probably know that, every codex just consists of a series of pieces of paper that have been folded up. And then you have, when you have, um, say, two or three pieces of paper together, um, then you have each of, each, each grouping is called, it's called either a gathering or a choir, and then you have a codex once they're sewn together. And so each of, these, each of these lines represents one piece of paper. And by paying attention to these, every, every choir, of course, when, in, when the manuscript was being created, each of these had their own life at some point. And so by paying attention to the way these are structured within a manuscript today, we can often learn a lot about it. The first, uh, the first booklet or a section of the manuscript is, consists entirely of Alexander's glosses on the Psalter. But what you might notice is that these, the choirs are numbered, and the fourth gathering in the book is in fact numbered four, but then the fifth is labeled nine. So we've lost four gatherings in there somewhere. And then there's more missing at the end. So, but you'll also notice that, well you can't, the manuscript isn't here, but the, the book is actually still in its medieval binding, and there's no evidence that anything was, that that anything was ever there. So somebody has, in fact, just stuck all this stuff together um, in the Middle Ages. 
And then the following, the following section in the book is Alexander's commentary on Proverbs, and the last is his commentary on the last chapter of Proverbs, the Mulierium Fortem, or strong woman passage. The commentary on Proverbs is, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the commentary on Proverbs is, it's been argued by um, Richard Southern, or Richard Hunt and Michael Gullick that this is in fact annotated by Alexander Nackham. You, you can see that um, this is in, these are fairly extensive revisions to the text. And you can see, too, that he's not really, this is, it's fairly messy, he's not really too concerned about the appearance of the manuscript. And so all of this seems to suggest that this is probably, um, this, these, these are probably revisions he made over the course of actually giving these lectures. And so, but that brings us from, Ox from Oxford to Sirencester, which was his next move, somewhere around the year 1200. Now, in Sirencester, he, it's been sort of thought that, well, he went to Sirencester, this is again sort of 20th century biases showing, it's been thought that, well, this is sort of a retirement for him, he could just sort of write in leisure, probably nothing could be further from the truth. He was, he eventually became the abbot of Sirencester in 1213, and and he seems to have actually gone there in response to something to sort of clean up an administrative crisis in the Abbey. This, in fact, this, in fa this eventually required uh, people, uh, people support in order to get everything cleaned up. And furthermore, at Sirencester, they had an, a really excellent library. They had, for example, books of canon law. This is Ivo Schart's Panormia. They had lots of collections of patristic materials. This is Jerome. And historical works such as Erosius. Here we have this, uh, this, this initial with this really wonderful collection of animals supporting a letter M. They had bead and more bead. They really liked bead. And these are, this is exactly the sort of material that you would want if you're writing the sort of things that Alexander was writing, such as the next thing that we find in Jesus College 94. That's his commentary on Proverbs. This is... The funny, thing, the, the funny thing about this text this is, is that it's unfinished. You can see that further on, he's also he's adding some more annotations. Um, he's, these have later been, most of these have actually been integrated into the, into the text by another scribe. He's a bit more concerned about the tidiness. Um, and, and so it's going on fairly nicely. There's a lot of changes in the scribe, oddly enough. But then it, just, then it just stops. And there's this odd little note at the bottom of the page um, saying, let's, you know, um, we're searching for something else here. And then the final gathering is, is, is on slightly smaller parchment. It's written in a different hand. And the, in the text very quickly just degenerates into verbatim quotations of Bede's commentary on Proverbs. And then it ends. And so what seems to have happened here is that, well, he probably died at this point. And so somebody appears to have just taken sort of loose notes that have been composed towards this text and just written them down for posterity. The final note is, the final section of the manuscript is his commentary on the strong woman. And this is one of the, this is, this is in many ways Alexander's um, most characteristic of Alexander's text. This is in fact 
um, this book was completed. And, and so it, you know, the way he starts off, he says, you know, okay, you know, he starts off with a text, who may find the strong woman? And he says, well, let's, you know, let's, talk about, let's talk about light. Let's talk about flowers. Let's talk about rocks. These are all really cool. And they're all like Mary Magdalene. And so this doesn't really fit you know, modern tastes. These, these, are, these are very lengthy texts there. Um, so, some people have said, well, these are sort of like encyclopedias, but that's sort of an anachronistic. Um, what he calls these things is, he calls these meditations. And so if we think of them as, um, if we think of them that way, if it, and once we realize that, if, once we note in his text that he actually apologizes to, to some extent for, for the verbosity of his writing, he says, well, you know, if you, if you don't like this, then just go to the next chapter. And he says, well, you know, what I'm trying to do here is, is, is provide a text to, to, to soothe the soul. And so in many ways, this is perhaps not so far off from, from our way of thinking. You might have... I noticed earlier this week in the Canadian University Affairs magazine, uh, mindfulness gaining traction on Canadian campuses. Um, and this is actually, this is largely the sort of thing he's trying to do, I think. It's, um, often this has been, th these, these commentaries have often been thought of as just extraordinarily conservative, um, just really sort of the worst of devotional literature. But wh what I think he's actually trying to do is pick up, uh, we know from, from the Science Esther collection that he had read Hugh of, Hugh of St. Victor. And he's probably trying to pick up Hugh of St. Victor's idea of, um, he, he presents it in his work, um, his Didascalicum. He says that the first, first step of understanding is reading, the second step is meditating on what you've read. But he doesn't really explain how to do that in a practical way. And I think that that's probably what Alexander is trying to exemplify. And so he's trying to do something new. Perhaps it didn't quite work in the end, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't innovative. Now, the Miliam Fortum text is, uh, this is, the, the text itself is, is quite clean. And once again, we have um, what seems to be the same hand as the Alexander's hand found in the Psalms commentary, but writing in a much lighter writing. And then these, these annotations in the manuscripts are later on integrated by, by the scribe in using, often using these nice ornate borders. So what we seem to have in this manuscript is, um, the, the, the other funny thing about this text, by the way, is that it was actually disseminated before, there's actually, there's another copy of it, also in the Bodleian, originally from Reading Abbey, that doesn't include these corrections. So obviously someone, someone, someone handed around a copy of this text before he actually made these revisions. These were made over some length of time. And there's some evidence in the manuscript that he, in fact, never totally finished it. There's sort of unfinished levels of um, adding marginal headings and that sort of thing. And so this manuscript, Jesus College 94, seems to have been put together um, probably after Alexander's death, probably um, by some sort of figure like a, some sort of literary executor, you could say, in modern terms. And that's, that's completely shaped the way in which we now, we now see these books. Now, the useful thing is that there is, in fact, a figure that, that seems to be fulfilling this role. His name is Walter de Melida. And Melida, by the way, that's um, Mileto in Calabria. And you might be wondering, well, um, why does somebody from 
what is somebody, somebody from Sicily doing in England? Um, it's actually not that, that uncommon. Of course, there was the, this is after the Norman conquest of Sicily, and there's quite a bit of back and forth between the two locations. Um, Robert of Cricklade himself went to Sicily and got horrifically sick and had to be healed at the shrine of Thomas Becket. Um, Peter Blaw went on a rather disastrous trip to try to run the Sicilian government. And so it's probably, we can probably guess that this Walter character was probably a Norman. And this slip of paper has been stuck in to, it's been stuck into a manuscript from Christchurch, Canterbury, which is um, Benedictine. And, and it actually seems to be an autograph letter by Walter. This is what it says. Walter de Melida to his beloved in Christ and friend, the most dear uh, Roger, Roger Norris, chaplain to the archbishop. This is, by the way, um, the same position that Walter held, the chaplain. Greetings and himself. I'm sending you the letter, the end of the sermon, beginning, thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. I also ask you to mark on some sheet or sedula the beginnings of all the sermons that you have in your possession and send them to me by the first messenger you can find. For I found after you left me, as if it happened by the will of God, some sermons of Master Alexander where other of his sermons are contained, which you do not have in your possession. And because I do not accurately remember all those which you already have, send me the beginnings of them all. They may thus have written those sermons which you do not have. Farewell. There's an urgency about this letter. And so it seems that Walter is doing is in fact creating a manuscript, perhaps something like this one. This is this is also, this, is, um, this manuscript is also in the Bodleian, and it's a collection of Alexander's sermons that run from, that follow the course of the church year. So it begins with the first sermon there is for Advent. And this, this, this manuscript was also owned by, um, this is owned by St. Augustine's in Canterbury. So, it seems that, so between these, between these manuscripts, he was obviously trying to collect the works of Alexander. And there's one further letter that involves Walter. This is from S, we don't know his full name, the prior of Malmesbury. And he's, he's here addressing Walter. He's, he's describing the, his, his experience reading Corregrazione's Promethei, which is Alexander's most famous work. You could call it, it's sort of a, it's a collection of weird words found in the Bible and what they mean. And this was, this is hugely appealing to medieval readers. We know of some 83 copies of this, of this book. And so his, his conclusion after reading this was, you know, Alexander is, has not only accepted gold, but is entirely clothed in it. This is, this is probably written after Alexander's death. Then he comes to a rather surprising conclusion. He says, these are my thoughts on the work and the worker. You will have seen whether they are agreeable and clear. My mind suggests to me in faithful testimony not to wander in words. I hope these are pleasing to you. If they are not, let me know first what displeases. Obviously, he's not concerned that Walter is going to vehemently disagree with him about the brilliance of Alexander Neckham. It seems that, so obviously his, his text was designed for some other purpose. I think it might have had, where, where it actually appears in, in manuscripts is uh, um, here in the background, you see this is part of the 
an anthology of Alexander's, Alexander's poetry. Um, and it also appears, in fact, at the end of a copy of Corrugazione's Promethei. And so it's possible that this is also perhaps part of a project to create a collection of the complete works of Alexander. We know, in fact, of such, such projects, for example, at, um, uh, at the Abbey of St. Victor in the 1140s, the Abbot Gildwin, after the, the death of Hugh of St. Victor, ordered the collection of the collected works of Hugh of St. Victor. We only know about this, however, because of the chance survival of a, of a document now at Merton College in a 15th century copy, which gives a listing of the original, the contents of the original four volumes of this edition. And, but we probably would never have known about its existence without this thing. And by looking at the manuscripts, further, further, um, further studies have actually shown that this, this text was hugely influential in the reception of Hugh's works. And so they're probably trying to do something similar. We actually see in the case of Sarah Ancestor, uh, for example, um, just the, 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 the sheer consistency in the manuscripts, there seems to be, have been a concerted effort to get copies of Alexander's work out there. Here, for example, you see um, alongside each other, this is on the left, this is the Siren Sister copy of his lectures uh, um, on, on Ecclesiastes, his, um, his commentary De Naturis Rerum. On the right is another copy in Cambridge, tr Cambridge's Trinity College. And you can see that they've actually attempted to imitate the page layers. I'm also fairly certain that this copy of Robert of Cricklade is also from Sirencester. Um, and it also seems to have annotations from Walter de Melida. And so this might also be the explanation for this giant book that we have on our left here. This is uh, Bodley Manuscript 284. And so this seems to have been a, a monumental copy of Alexander's works created for basically for preservation purposes. And we can tell that this is probably from Simon Sister because it actually integrates a lot of the, in a slightly revised form, a lot of the annotations that you see in Jesus College 94. And the funny thing about this manuscript is that, um, first of all, you might, you might notice it's enormous size. If you look at the collation structure of it, again, it, it's actually, it was probably two volumes originally. And, it has this really, it has this absolutely stunning series of illuminated initials with it. And it's been thought that, Nigel Morgan has argued that these initials actually are not, um, these, they're, they're actually probably in the style of other Oxford manuscripts. So this book seems to have been some sort of collaborative product. The exact nature of this isn't clear, but it's certainly not beyond the realm of possibility, as you'll see from the last manuscript that we'll look at today. This is in Cambridge University Library, um, GG642. It's, um, it's called from, it's in Chippet, you can call it Solmeldunensis, or the, the son of Malmesbury. So this book was, Science Sister, by the way, is, this book is actually dedicated, is given as a gift to the abbot of Malmesbury. And it was created at Sirencester. And Malmesbury is, by the way, about, about 20 kilometers or about 12 miles from, from Sirencester. So you can, you can understand that you might want to 
preserve good relationships with them. This is what the first page looks like. And so on the, on the right-hand side, those are, all, those are all labels showing these are, all these are all from different works of Alexander Neckham. They're very careful to cite all of these things. The first one there this says you know, this, is, this, is from, um, this is from the sermon on, uh, on John by Alexander Neckham. But before all of this stuff, and they, 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 they weave all of, these, all of these citations of Alexander in just one really long, what he calls a sermon, although it's so long that you could never have actually preached it. And it opens with, with this verse epistle. He says, and he, so he refers to the, the abbot of Malmesbury as you know, the sun and the moon of Malmesbury, the light of the monks. And he, you know, he, he requests that the abbot you know, correct his works, which is sort of a, this is a classical sign of, of friendship. And we see from this little annotation off to the side that um, we can guess that this person is himself probably an Augustinian canon. He calls himself cloistered. Now, the fascinating thing about this book is that um, all, of these, all of these quotations um, were actually, you can tell that they were definitely drawn from Sarancester manuscripts. Here we have, this is back at Jesus College 94, you see those, those little R marks in the margin correspond exactly to the beginning and end of a quotation, the quotation of this passage in, uh, in the Son of Malmesbury. And... And you can also tell that this book is, in fact, by looking at the way it's been corrected, you can also tell that this is, in fact, an another one of our original fair copies. Right here, um, you see at, at the top there that this, this passage has actually been, the scribes is writing along, he's copying from Alexander's commentary on Proverbs. And so he's just copying, he says, it's better to live in a corner of, in a corner of the house top than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. But this, God willing, will be explained, no, wait a second. And then the next word in the commentary should have been below, but he skips over that. He realizes that, wait a second, no, we're, going to, we're about to end this extract from Proverbs. This will not be explained below. So he skips that word, crosses out that passage, and moves on a much chastened scribe. So we can tell. So this is. So this is. In fact, we can. In fact, infer from the codicological evidence of this book about the make, make inferences about the the composition of this text. Now we can tell that we, we know that this is um, given to the abbot of Malmesbury. We know that the abbot's name is also Geoffrey, and this allows us to date the book to his time that between 1246 and 1260. This is the next verse epistle in the book. This is um, this is actually just a. Um, the first one seems to be original. This one is, seems to be d lifted from the text of Reginald of, of Canterbury's, his life of Malachi. And then the final verse epistle that closes the first section of the manuscript, what's traditionally been called the Florilegium of Alexander Neckham's works, um, this is mostly from Reginald of Canterbury as well. Um, and once again, it's repeating the trope of you know, let's, let's basically, you know, let's correspond and be friends. But um, after, so there's, you can see the, the, the beginning and the end are from Reginald. He wisely leaves out the bit about the book being sent across the sea from France. Um, but, but then this, this passage right here in the middle is actually a quotation from Alexander Neckham. He says, let a page be exchanged between us. May your mind be known as well as mine with a note as intermediary. The original context of these lines is 
addressing Ralph, who is the master of the school at um, Alexander's old post in Dunstable. So he says, accept teacher Ralph, the nephew I send to you. Teach him with diligent care. May the work commend the artist. May the teaching of the master be clear to the student by its own witness. Let a page be exchanged between us. Let my mind be known. Let your mind be known as well as mine with the note as intermediary. So it's rather, he's sending his nephew off to school, and the really convenient thing is that we actually know Alexander Neckham had a nephew from the cartulary of Siren Sister Abbey, and his name is Geoffrey. He was Geoffrey Brito. He's um, somewhere between 1215 and 1230. He was made the vicar of Milbourne Port, and then later on he was assigned a stall in Siren Sister's parish church of St. John the Evangelist, St. John the Baptist, I'm sorry. And so, and the interesting thing about uh, this, this latter assignment in particular, and then another one, is that the Abbey Cartulary says that he's being given these positions uh, specifically to honor the memory of Alexander Neckham, and, and it specifically lists Geoffrey Brito as his nephew. And so you can imagine, and then the other thing is that these, um, th th this charter, both of them, um, are, they're both signed by the Abbot of Malmesbury. And so, you can, and so you can see that Geoffrey Brito would have had very obvious motivations between, behind creating this, this book. Now, the next section of the book, after this, after this really big chunk at the beginning, all these Alexander Neckham quotations, um, the next section is an excerpt from Geoffrey of Monmouth's Prophecies of Merlin. And this is written in, it's written in a different hand from the rest of the manuscript. It's, you can see that the style of decoration is, is a bit different. And you'll also notice, and so I think that we can probably argue that this is in fact added by the monks in Malmesbury. That they probably took Geoffrey's invitation to, to, to correspond quite literally. And you can see here that they've, they've, also, they've also left extra spacing in between the lines as a sort of invitation to add more. And in fact, somebody has in fact added more glosses, just like in uh, Alexander's Unuseful Things that we saw at the beginning. And we know that this is part of the original, the original structure of the manuscript because um, the rubricator from, from the Florilegium has gone and added a title in here later. But, um, and, and, and then there's also more annotations earlier in the manuscript that have been added. Here we see, um, here we see another, another quotation from Alexander Neckin that's been woven in with the rest of the text. And you can see from the style of the decoration that's done by the original person, but at a later date. It's, so it, it appears that the main text was copied, and then somebody, somebody copied out this passage at the, at, the, at, the, at the bottom of the page, and then somebody tried to integrate it by adding in more decoration there. And so, chances are that this is probably the work of the monks at Malmesbury. A lot of the things from there that have been added, they're mostly from this work, again, the Corrugationis Promethei, that we know is so loved by Malmesbury. There's also a page that's been tipped into the manuscript. That's, it's, all it is is this is, this is the whole thing. It's, it's a single leaf, and it, it, it shows two monks in, in, um, on both sides in dialogue. And that the second character on the left there appears to be uh, one of the earliest depictions of St. Francis. 
And then finally, at the end of the manuscript, there's more has been added. This is, this is, a, this is an anthology of Alexander's verses. And here's another, this, here's another diagram showing the collation of this manuscript. Um, the interesting thing is that so all of these, all of these editions are limited to certain sections. They have slightly different kinds of, if you, when you actually feel the book, you can see that they have slightly different kinds of parchment in every case. Um, there's, also, there's also a hand that, that makes annotations both in, in the green bit there, the Prophecies of Merlin, and in the whole Florilegium, but not in the verse anthology in blue at the end. And so I think we can probably argue that what happened here was that it, the manuscript was probably created in Siren's sister, was sent off to Malmesbury, where they added more, more stuff. They probably added all the, all the, the Corrugationes Prometheus stuff, the St. Francis page, which, by the way, is thought to be from probably Matthew Paris's school at St. Albans. And then probably at Siren's sister, they may have, in fact, added this, these, this verse florilegium at the end, which has very few annotations again. And then perhaps send it back to Malmesbury. There's a rather mysterious inscription at the beginning of the manuscript from a later date um, that seems to imply that the manuscript is referring to Siren Sister, but seems to be um, referring that it wasn't actually in Siren Sister. And so the monks really, they could not have come up with this, this form of collaboration. They couldn't have come up with a better way of honoring the memory of Alexander Neckham. He writes in, in his commentary on the strong woman, he says, in different churches, different customs are observed, and although they may seem to oppose themselves, yet they lead those who observe them directly to the heavenly palace. Consider the Cistercians, the Cluniacs, the Carthusians, and the most holy customs of the other orders. What will you find in them other than the delicious joy of heavenly love? And so they, you know, this is, this is in, in many ways, this, they're not concerned about you know, divisions between monastic orders. They're, they're just interested in following up on a, on a shared project. So hopefully what you've seen from all of these examples today is that no, no medieval author worked alone. We, there's all sorts of people who, whose names don't appear on the title page, just as with just as with modern books, but they profoundly influence the way in which we read medieval authors today. And hopefully this also gives you a sense of the intellectual values of, of the er, the, some of the earliest um, academics leading up to the creation of the, of the university. They, and in many ways, they, they're perhaps more like us than, than we might think. They're dedicated to to intellectual rigor, but also um, to ensuring what, they, what the Augustinian canons like to refer to as the public utility of their work. And they're also deeply committed to, to the growth and nurturing of communities through the creation of shared projects. Thank you very much. <laughs>